Welcome everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming to uh, our annual Harvard LSE Islamic Finance Lecture. Um, it's become a really, a really important um, event in our calendar and, and, and we very much value um, you know, working together with, with Harvard on this Islamic Finance Lecture. So thank you for coming. Um, before I introduce our speakers today, I just wanted to mention um, it's been quite important for a year, a year for us here at the LSE on Islamic finance. We ran an Islamic finance seminar series uh, in the first term. Uh, and the aim of that was really to introduce Islamic finance to um, our students and the broader LSE uh, community. Um, and uh, we recorded those lectures. So um, Farmida very kindly came and gave us one of the lectures. Uh, so they're on our website. If you want to learn more, find out more about Islamic finance, we have an introductory series of lectures on our Law Department website. Um, so tonight uh, we're going to be talking uh, about risk sharing and uh, cooperative finance and uh, uh, we're very grateful to have two fabulous speakers um, who are going to speak to us tonight. First of all we have Dr. Paul Mills uh, from uh, the IMF who will be speaking first. Um, uh, Paul um, has a, a phenomenal career trajectory, he's worked for the Treasury and set up the Debt Management Office in the UK where he was head of policy for several years. Returned to the Treasury for a period of time and then joined the IMF in 2006 where he's been working on financial stability. So as you would imagine, he's had quite a lot to do. Um, he got his doctorate from Cambridge where he did some work on Islamic finance and Paul will start first tonight. Um, I think we'll let the speakers talk uh, for 15 minutes and then we'll take questions after both speakers have, um, have given their observations. Um, and following Paul, then, we're very fortunate to have um, Famida B from uh, Norton Rose Fulbright. Um, Famida um, is one of the leading debt capital markets, equity markets, uh, lawyers in the UK. And most importantly for us tonight, she is head of Islamic Finance um, at Norton Rose. Um, Right, and has been at the forefront of a lot of innovations in Islamic finance in the UK market um, and importantly has been involved in what we're hoping is a forthcoming uh, sukuk from the UK government if it ever happens. So uh, I'll hand over to our two speakers and when they have finished their observations then we will take questions from the floor. Well thank you for the invitation and uh, just the usual disclaimer that nothing I say uh, should be taken as the views of the IMF or else I'll get in real trouble. Uh, so there is, this is just purely personal. So we've been through uh, the most uh, calamitous failure of orthodox debt finance uh, in two generations. Uh, it started with irresponsible debt securitization uh, in the US uh, that severed the link between the lender and borrower. Uh, it then um, mutated into a crisis of wholesale funding of debt finance through repo and wholesale uh, bond issuance, uh, particularly investment banks uh, in the U.S. were shown to be repo funded. There was a lot of short-term problems in hedge funds and conduits. Uh, then we had a problem with uh, commercial banks, conventional commercial banks, who ended up owning a lot of this uh, for spread. And so the naivety of uh, Western regulators thinking that anything with the AAA must be safe and therefore didn't need any capital behind it uh, was shown to be completely false. Uh, it then uh, burst property 
and perhaps sovereign borrowing bubbles uh, in the US, Spain, Ireland, etc. And so you would have thought uh, that this would have prompted a search for a new alternative. And we've had some soul-searching. Uh, we've had regulators and central banks thinking very hard about how to make the system safer. And that has entailed uh, raising capital requirements for banks, uh, narrowing uh, their maturity uh, transformation mismatch, so they're not allowed to uh, lend as long or hold as few liquid assets as before. Uh, but we haven't had a serious um, soul-searching about the whole basis of our financial system. Uh, it essentially remains, on the banking side, uh, on mortgage side and so on, uh, debt-based. Even though the results have been uh, enormous uh, and unprecedented stimulus by central banks, vast uh, deficits run by governments to act as borrowers of last resort, and perhaps the longest and deepest uh, recession in the UK loss of potential output uh, since the 1930s, if not uh, worse than that. Um, we have had some ex-post risk-sharing. So one of the themes uh, that we're going to be talking about is why isn't there more risk-sharing in finance? And, of course, the debt systems um, do have some ex-post risk-sharing. And you're going to see a bit more coming up. You've seen uh, the U.S. system start to heal itself a little bit through mortgage foreclosures, short sales, and mortgages actually being written off as a result. And those losses spread through that evil securitization structure that's allowed the U.S. system to actually heal quicker than Europe. Uh, we've had some bank failures, some write-offs, some depositor bail-ins, most notably in Cyprus. Uh, the Irish banking system is starting to edge towards uh, mortgage debt relief uh, for the impaired mortgage book uh, in the domestic Irish market. Iceland is about to put through a mortgage haircut, uh, subsidised by foreign creditors of its external banks. Um, so there are, is some ex-post risk-sharing uh, starting to occur, but in the main, it hasn't happened. Particularly in Europe, banks have been bailed out rather than been allowed to fail. Bank creditors have been made whole rather than taken haircuts. Um, the Austrian government at the moment is struggling with whether it's going to allow an effectively criminal bank to uh, go into insolvency or whether Austrian taxpayers are going to have to put 6% of Austrian GDP behind it uh, to stop a systemic crisis in Austria. Why has this happened? Because the debt system has accumulated so much risk in it that no one really dares try the idea of uh, risk sharing to creditors in a serious way. It's deemed to be too risky, and so you still get central banks uh, at zero interest rates and uh, treasuries forced to bail out banking systems. So you would have thought this huge crisis that is still going on uh, would have prompted this soul-searching of debt finance, and it hasn't happened. And what I'm going to do briefly is just answer three 
questions. Why hasn't the sort of risk-sharing ideal filled this void? And that's sort of to comment on how is the debt system so resilient? Then I've been asked to ask, answer the question, sort of why hasn't Islamic finance in that sense succeeded? Why hasn't it been seen as the alternative model? And how could we make uh, risk-sharing finance uh, viable or that alternative? And I'll touch briefly on the role of mutuals in financial systems and could, that, could they be an alternative uh, to uh, limited liability banks? So why hasn't the risk-sharing uh, financial system or alternative filled this void that uh, has been there because the debt system has in one sense clearly failed? This is where we have to understand how resilient the debt mentality, the debt system is, uh, given uh, that it has various artificial advantages that continue despite this crisis. Debt is an initially cheap contract to, t to make. Uh, it has low transaction costs. It's easy to understand. It doesn't transfer ownership. And therefore, it, therefore it's immediately appealing. And it's one, in one sense, the default contract uh, non-sophisticated um, systems uh, use. Of course, those costs... Uh, are suffered later when defaults occur, when the system needs bailing out. So debt is initially cheap because it spreads costs later on to others, to innocent third parties, be they creditors in bankruptcy, be they taxpayers in bailout, be it those who uh, suffer through inflation being used to uh, nominally haircut those who are holding nominal debts or money. Then you have to understand debt-based systems are bailed out, as we've seen, by their sponsors. Uh, central banks provide cheap and subsidized liquidity and sometimes covert capital assistance. Uh, finance ministries offer capital assistance. Why do they do this? Uh, because authorities are too scared to allow a system to fail. They don't want to see asset values go to a market-clearing level. That is bad politics, that is bad economics. Uh, the initial costs would be too great. And so, as we've seen in the crisis, the initial response is always bailout and hope that the system will hold, hold itself together and grow itself out of the problems later. One egregious example of this is that during uh, the post-Lehman crisis in 2008, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs were fast-tracked through uh, to become commercial banks uh, over a weekend in order to be able to legally access the Fed's discount window. If that hadn't been done, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley would not exist now. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have lasted a week after Lehman's. That favor would not be done for normal small commercial banks in trouble. Then we have to realize that the debt-based system is still being subsidized and helped, and hence is still being um, sort of uh, helped to be competitive. Uh, we still have corporate tax breaks uh, for company debt. In many countries, we still have uh, interest tax breaks for mortgage debt. Uh, 
uh, although it's been cut back, uh, there is still a big implicit subsidy for too-big-to-fail banks. Uh, there's a chapter in the forthcoming chapter in the Global Financial Stability Review from the, from the fund in April that will quantify that as well. And so if you take the uh, rating benefit that large banks get from being implicitly guaranteed by governments, that's still running, in the UK's case, at tens of billions of pounds a year of subsidy. Um, but also you have to remember that we've had, in the West, 400 years now of acting in effectively a debt-based banking system way. And so there are network externality benefits of sticking with what you know. It's a bit like the QWERTY keyboard, even though it's now known to be not the most efficient layout for a keyboard, the costs of changing would be so great that it's not worth doing. And so this idea of persist with what we know uh, continues. Then you have to understand that risk-sharing contracts are initially costly. As we were discussing beforehand about the UK Sukuk, it's actually proving very difficult for the UK government to find assets to securitize or structure in a way that is Islamically compliant. Um, profit share contracts uh, entail the uh, changing of ownership, uh, tougher monitoring costs, and so on, and then introduce moral hazard and adverse selection. And so whilst there will always need to be equity in a financial system, some profit and loss sharing, um, initially, structuring contracts on this basis is more costly. Now, there are then benefits of risk sharing down the line, but initially it becomes more difficult. And so you have this disjuncture. The debt system, whilst imposing lots of costs and clearly uh, causing instability, uh, is, is uh, deemed to be fixable. Uh, we can make it safer, and we won't make the same mistakes again. And so the idea of switching the whole basis of uh, the financial system has not really been taken seriously. So why hasn't uh, Islamic finance, in that sense, been seized, as, seized on as the alternative? Why hasn't it, in a sense, succeeded uh, and moved out of um, being... Uh, provision for uh, a religious group, a minority in the West, but not uh, seen as viable for others. So that's partly due uh, to uh, how Islamic finance has actually operated over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, in practice, what has happened is that uh, the profit-sharing side of Islamic banks has concentrated either on the easy-to-do, which is Islamically compliant, that is uh, trade finance, or on uh, property structuring. There's very little, as far as I was aware in the literature, and I'm, I will admit I'm not up to speed with exactly all the latest developments, there hasn't been a great deal in terms of true profit and loss sharing, um, contracting, equity-type intermediation on the asset side. It's relatively easy to do on the liability side for a financial institution. You effectively turn deposits into a mutual fund and you can profit and loss share the return uh, with savers. But it's actually quite difficult to do on the asset side. Then there's been a lack of clarity 
and uniformity over what has been Islamically compliant. And so uh, whilst we, all, we know that there were going to be higher contracting costs, higher transaction costs as a result of risk sharing, these have been compounded by the fact that different Islamic scholars have different views. And so you don't have a standardized approach across countries, across jurists, across banks. And this was epitomized by um, a sort of statement in 2008 uh, by the Bahrain Accounting and Audit Organization for Islamic Financial Institutions that essentially said the majority of sukuks up to that time were non-Islamic because they'd been structuring too much towards a bond-type structure. And so that was sort of epitomized by um, what we saw in 2009 with Dubai World. Uh, I was called in to sort of quickly get up to speed with the crisis in Dubai and was somewhat surprised that the sukuks that Dubai World had, uh, had issued and were coming, there was one in particular that was coming up for maturity in 2009, uh, was going to default. And here was I with my Islamic finance background saying, how can a sukuk, a true sukuk, default? And, of course, various guarantees and buyback options had been structured into the contract to give bond-type features to attract Western investors. And so it wasn't really a pass-through, true risk-sharing contract at all. It was actually um, a structured rental-sharing contract, but with guarantees that made it quite bond-like. And so even when you have supposedly Islamically compliant instruments, uh, they've not actually been um, necessarily um, pure in terms of risk sharing. And so you have a degree of cynicism from the rest of the world. When I talk to uh, sort of uh, Westerners about, oh, I did uh, my PhD, some of it in Islamic finance, uh, the, the role of the eyes comes across of cynicism and, and the belief that this is just ways in which interest is being uh, dressed up to fulfill Islamic requirements. So what are some of the things that uh, could be done to address this? Well, first of all, there are various things in the approach of Islamic finance to try and ad address some of these problems. First of all, uh, some degree of standardized jurisprudence would help to reduce transaction costs. So that means trying to get structures across countries, across jurists, across institutions relatively similar, um, and presumably not to include too much in terms of uh, guarantees, so that the spirit as well as the letter of the law is being observed. Uh, I suspect we then need to drop the label of Islamically compliant. Just from a marketing perspective, uh, we need to start using terms around either risk sharing, uh, co-ownership, debt freedom, or even relational would be better labels uh, if the concept is to be more widely uh, uh, accepted. Uh, but then how could... Risk sharing, the risk sharing concept be more widely, uh, made more widely appealing uh, to uh, the authorities in uh, Western Europe or the US or whatever. 
Uh, first of all, we need to be much more explicit about the costs of debt finance. And in one sense, the LSE would be a great place to start thinking about how macroeconomies become less stable because they rely on debt finance. And so the crisis of macroeconomics has been, we didn't see this coming, uh, we can't adapt our macro models to include a destabilizing financial system. And so we won't understand what's gone on and we won't understand what's going on in the future until macroeconomic economists understand the non-linearities that arise because of debt finance. <coughs> so debt uh, is stable for most of the time. And then you have jump to default and jump to deposit run equilibria that come up and cause uh, massive instability. But most macroeconomists don't have a financial system in their models, so they don't understand that, let alone be able to model it. And so without understanding that instability process, uh, we won't get traction uh, in the wider economics profession. But to make the idea more appealing, you've got to start attacking some of those artificial subsidies that debt has, be that uh, the tax benefits uh, that it receives, the too-big-to-fail subsidies that go to conventional banks, uh, the inflation that comes about because we have to bail out debtors. Uh, we're coming up to the anniversary of the UK's uh, withdrawal from the gold standard in 19... Sorry, the centenary in 1914. Over that 100 years... Uh, the Bank of England and the Treasury have overseen uh, the UK price level rise a hundred times. So a penny in 1914 is worth what a pound is worth now. Why has that massive inflation been allowed to occur? Because uh, shocks have had to be accommodated. The price level has been raised in order to keep uh, marginal debtors uh, solvent. We then need to start making the bailout of debt-based systems much more difficult, if not illegal. It may surprise you to know that Dodd-Frank in the U.S. makes it illegal for the Federal Reserve to bail out a systemic bank again. Nobody on Wall Street actually believes that because that would mean that J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs couldn't exist. They couldn't be financed as highly levered institutions. So until that threat uh, becomes credible, uh, you're still going to have that uh, advantage of too-big-to-fail banks. You then have to start thinking about splitting the payment system utility away from the banking system. Banks are bailed out because they hold the payment system hostage, and so the authorities can't risk the banking system failure because uh, the payment system would go with it. it would be a, it's a bit like um, allowing a hedge fund to run uh, the post office or the electricity uh, generating system. You've, we've bolted a 30 or 40 times levered balance sheet onto a utility that needs to hold up under any circumstances. And then we wonder why the system needs to be bailed out all the time. Um, 
Vickers and others are putting the ring fence on UK banks in the wrong place. It's, we don't need to ring fence commercial from investment banking. We need to in, um, ring fence the payment system from the rest of the balance sheet. And so other, other things to think about in terms of um, encouraging uh, the start to move to risk sharing. First of all, it would be to start getting out of our current debt problem by encouraging uh, debt for equity swaps. Uh, we are facing perhaps decades of uh, financing very heavy debt burdens, be it governments or households or corporates, um, at very low interest rates um, because we've got no easy mechanism of writing debt off or moving debt into equity. Uh, inflation is very low, if not turning negative, and the debt burdens are going to carry on rising. So how do you start thinking about doing this? You have to start haircutting mortgages and start giving financial intermediaries uh, an option or share of the house uh, instead of the debt, for instance. And that would start giving you the foundations for a proper lease-to-buy market uh, to replace debt-based housing finance. Um, you then might have to utilize some of the tools of the dreaded securitization process or even Sukuk process in order to um, allow those shares in, for instance, housing or property uh, to be held by longer-term balance sheets. Banks are not very good at holding long-term assets, and we've pretended our, to ourselves that this can be done without great subsidy. Now, what we should be doing is finding structures whereby, for instance, housing finance, uh, particularly on a, a lease-to-buy or a rental basis, are held in instruments that can be held by long-term investors, particularly insurance companies and pension funds. So those are a few ideas about how to start shifting uh, the system to risk-sharing uh, basis. Just a few comments on do mutuals have a role in this. Um, in one sense, mutuals have had a very good start to the crisis. In the UK, every building society that converted into a bank failed in this crisis. So the Abbey Nationals was taken over, uh, the Northern Rock started the process, uh, Halifax had to be bailed out, Alliance and Leicester has gone. Bradford and Bingley has gone. And so you've seen all these supposed uh, cautious uh, housing-related banks uh, that came from building societies. Uh, they've gone as a result of uh, being too exposed to the housing market. And so there are pros, advantages to having mutuals in your financial system. Governance is closer to members. There is a greater clarity of purpose and transparency over activities. You know what a building society is generally doing. Uh, Non-profit maximization uh, results in better treatment of members uh, with a lower cost of capital. And uh, building societies, mutuals are not subject to the whims of the stock market and equity analysts. However, having said that, mutuals have had a poor middle of the crisis. 
Uh, we've seen this, uh, the scandals and the weaknesses uh, that's come with uh, the co-op. And uh, we've got looming issues uh, in the building society sector in the UK. Uh, often building societies are, are writing um, loss-making business at the moment or holding a book of loss-making mortgages at the moment and capital is under strain. If interest rates were to rise and house prices were to significantly fall, uh, a number of building societies in the UK would be in trouble. And so uh, you're finding, for instance, some countries uh, now determined to eradicate mutuals from their banking systems because of their perception of, included, of bringing in weakness into the, into the banking system. So Spain effectively is trying to eliminate its mutual sector because it sees the mutuals of, as having um, exacerbated the housing crisis and making it harder to recapitalize the Spanish banking system. So I think the bottom line, just uh, to finish on mutuals, is that they have a role uh, in a financial system, but they're not the, um, uh, the silver bullet, the, uh, the easy uh, way of fixing things. Particularly debt-based uh, mutuals still get sucked in to many of the uh, temptations that uh, commercial banks do. So to conclude, uh, debt-based systems uh, have shown uh, that they produce uh, destabilizing outcomes. Uh, from an economics point of view, they result in uh, non-linear dynamics and uh, non-stable equilibrium. Uh, they need external parties to subsidize them and then to bail them out. Uh, they wouldn't exist if they weren't. Uh, when Deutsche Bank came into this crisis, it was leveraged 70 times uh, without implicit support from the German uh, government and cheap liquidity from the ECB, it would not have survived. Um, Islamic finance needs to start importing uh, other concepts to, to make itself more appealing, however, if it's going to act as a true competitor, particularly in non-Muslim countries. So it's, dare one say it, going to have to start bringing in some uh, Christian concepts. I, I talk as a Christian. Um, so it's going to have to start talking about debt freedom and relational finance. Uh, from Because uh, the Bible also prohibits interest. It is also a an endorser of debt-free finance. And the church, unfortunately, from my perspective, has lost this and, and went the wrong way 400 years ago. Uh, but some of us are starting to resurrect and uh, bring in, uh, trying to promote more of these concepts of risk-sharing and relational finance. And there is a sort of common ground between Islam and Christianity in this uh, space. Uh, in the move to need to move society towards debt freedom and towards mutual risk sharing. Um, but there is going to be plenty of opportunities to come. Uh, the, perhaps the sobering thought is that I would anticipate that we have, without a move to true risk sharing, uh, several decades of uh, 
debt burdens uh, still to bear. Thanks. Good evening, everyone, and assalamu alaikum. Thank you for being here this evening. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to, to be here and, and to join this discussion. I want to follow on from what Paul was saying. I think we'll probably cover some of the same ground, but perhaps from a different perspective. Uh, some of you, I know, were at the Euromoney conference this morning, and um, the second day of the Euromoney conference is always quite exciting because we have about 10 of the world's leading scholars who discuss issues of interest and take questions from the audience. And this year, like pretty much every other year, there is always a sense of anxiety about whether Islamic finance is being true to its original principles um, and whether what we're doing is, a, is, is form over substance. This sort of quest, there are questions um, that basically go to the core of that year in, year out and the scholars try and address it. And for me, the question of what Islamic finance is, what is the point of an Islamic bank, if it's just like a conventional bank that doesn't charge interest, but charges something that is interest-like, then you know, is this a, an industry that has a future? Similarly, I mean, it's an industry that started um, in its beginnings, which are pretty recent, in the, based on the European mutual uh, example. And yet, at the moment, when we talk about Islamic finance and in particular Islamic banks, the comparisons we make are not with mutuals at all. It tends to be with Islamic, sorry, with conventional banks. And so, what I want to explore um, in, in, in the, sort of the time that I have this evening is are Islamic banks like conventional banks? Are they like mutual banks? Or are they something else? Um, because Islamic finance at the moment, I think, is at a complete cusp. Um, it's been a real minority sport for a very long time. But at the moment, it's growing extremely quickly. And it has demographic and economic factors in its favor. So Muslims comprise just over 2 billion people um, in the world. And yet, when you look at their share of GDP, it's about 7%. If you look at some of the fastest growing economies with the largest populations, whether that's Indonesia, Turkey, Egypt, Nigeria, those kinds of countries, they have either exclusively or very largely Muslim populations. And those populations are hugely underbanked. So when um, a bank first goes into a particular village or town, if it has an Islamic label, people tend to trust it and go to it. If it doesn't, then there tends to be less of a take-up. So I think, Paul, you talked about Islamic banks and Islamic finance dropping the Islamic label from a PR perspective. I think that would probably be a mistake. The Islamic label is what is making it uniquely attractive at the moment. The, the danger for Islamic finance is that it has the label, but it's perceived not to be following through on the principles. And if that is... If, if that is a feeling, a sense that grows, then I think the entire industry will crumble. And the fact that at every gathering there is talk of the, the cynicism, the worries about disguised interest, um, if we don't address that and work out if there is a way of dealing with it, then the industry may not have a long-term future. So 
I, I think it's at a, a crossroad at the moment. It's having a form of identity crisis. It has vast opportunities that are available to it at the moment, but it's got to decide what it, what it is. And so I, I want to talk about how it compares uh, to conventional banks, how it compares to mutuals, and what it is that is unique about Islamic finance, if there is anything at all, and, and perhaps there isn't. So, as I said earlier, Islamic banks were inspired by the European mutual banks. The, the first co-op bank was set up in Germany in 1852. The first bank that's thought of as an Islamic bank wasn't set up until 111 years later. Um, uh, Somebody called Dr. Ahmed Naga established Mitgama in Egypt in 1963. It wasn't described formally as an Islamic bank, but um, Dr. Naga had been in Germany. He had seen how the mutual banks worked, and he set up a bank which didn't pay or charge interest, which entered into trade and, uh, and, and, and profit and loss arrangements. Um, and for a while, it was very successful. And then it, it, it was ended, and then there's a lot of dispute about whether it failed commercially or whether it was seen as a threat and was closed down. But certainly that is sort of seen as the, as the start. And, and in the same year, um, Tabung Haji, the Pilgrims uh, Fund, was set up in Malaysia. So when we look at this industry and think about its development and, um, and its sophistication, we're talking about a very short history compared to conventional Western banking, which has been you know, going for a, a thousand or so years. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons that um, people worry about whether Islamic banks have anything unique to offer is that so many of the conventional banks that, that Paul referred to are active in the Islamic finance markets. So City, HSBC, Standard Chartered, and, and many of the others, so Goldman's, J.P. Morgan, and others, um, offer either a range of Islamic finance products. They are active in this market, and they compete head-on, um, certainly on the investment banking side with the Islamic banks. And so one of the things that the, the Islamic banks have to think about is are they there to provide... Um, a service for a community or are they like conventional banks out to make a profit as quickly as possible for their shareholders and, and yet one of the things that I think we have to think about is both Islamic banks and mutuals have come out of the financial crisis relatively secure and we talked about um, uh, Dubai World and the Nikhil Sukuk. But there was a wobble, um, I think, around the end of 2009-2010. But Islamic finance has got over that particular wobble. Worries about the nature of Sukuk and whether it is really a profit share arrangement or whether um, what you're getting is um, simply an asset-based deal where at the end of the day what you have left is a claim which gives you no right to the underlying asset. I mean, those worries have been going for a long time, and Sukuk can be a true form of securitization. It's just that that's not what investors want. And so part of the discussion about what is the point of Islamic finance and does it need to be a system that's based purely on sharing profit and loss is fundamentally what is it that we as customers and as investors want 
Um, you know, we, we live in a, a complex world where we don't all have access to the same information. If I'm uh, investing in a Sukuk, I don't have uh, the time, the information uh, to diligence the asset that sits under the Sukuk. And so am I able to invest and take um, an informed decision on the risks that I'm taking? Or do I put in my investment and accept that I'll get a, a fixed return, a return that's agreed pretty much up front, and if it all goes wrong, I'll have a debt claim against somebody that is unsecured. I mean, that's the position we're in. Um, I know at um, one of the sessions that we've had, one of the, the bankers that, uh, that offers Islamic finance product said with some frustration, we offer profit share instruments. It's just that customers don't want them. They want the comfort of, um, uh, of a secure return. They want to know that they're going to get paid back. And so one of the issues for the, the global Muslim population is, is what kind of, um, uh, of product do they want? Do they want to share in profit and loss? Do they really hate the conventional banking model um, as much as sort of the newspapers suggest at the moment? And if they do, what kind of alternative are they looking for? And that question applies as much in the Islamic world as it does in the West. Now, I had prepared some slides, um, but I'm not sure if they're going to work. But what, what I wanted to do was to compare Islamic banks with mutual banks, with conventional banks, with just a, a slide across the top. Because I wanted to understand where they were the same and where they were different. And if you look at the ownership structure, mutual banks tend to, you know, are owned by their members. Those members um, appoint or form part of the management. Um, they typically lend no more than their deposits. And they offer a limited number of products, sort of typically savings and, and, and um, loans at, um, at, at uh, acceptable levels of, of interest that, um, that their members can pay. By contrast, Islamic banks have shareholders, and their primary function is to generate as many returns uh, for their shareholders as the conventional banks do. So they're under pressure to increase profits year on year, quarter on quarter, because that's what shareholders want. Um, with um, um, leverage, the, 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 there is much more of a similar attitude between the Islamic banks and the mutual banks. The Islamic banks are, were not leveraged in the way that the conventional banks were. And so it's, some of that was limited access to funding. Some of it was that they were simply not able to participate in some of the, the risk-transferring uh, uh, instruments that were available in the market. Um, but in terms of what their, their mission is and their, their attitude to risk, um, th there are strong comparisons between Islamic banks and mutual banks. But that, that um, approach where I think um, Islamic banks are driving some of their uh, uh, um, approach to sharing risk, to maximizing returns, to looking for instruments that are going to minimize risk that they're taking on for known returns. That is all being driven by their corporate structure, which is typically um, not as mutual uh, organizations that are owned by their members. If you're a, a depositor in an Islamic bank, your recourse, if you're not happy with what management is doing or the kind of risks that it's taking, is to withdraw your deposit. 
you're typically not involved in the decision-making. Beyond your agreed return, you don't usually sort of share in the ultimate profits that the organization um, is creating. The, the original sort of dream of Islamic finance, which was a, a sort of a, a double investment structure where depositors would invest their money with the bank and the bank would then invest its money with businesses and there would be a sharing of risk sort of both at the stage of the bank which would hopefully make profits that would then be shared with the depositors. That, that's not always being uh, lived up to. Um, but I think we have to sort of question whether people want that level of exposure. Um, in the UK, when the Islamic banks were set up here, the, um, the Financial Services Authority back then um, wanted, uh, insisted that deposits were guaranteed in the way that conventional deposits were guaranteed. And um, in the discussions uh, that happened, uh, the, 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 where we said that's not part of the Islamic model, you don't get your deposit guaranteed and get it back if the bank becomes insolvent. The, 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 con- the sort of, I suppose, the conclusion at the end, the position at the moment, is that the, uh, the guarantee is offered. And it's the customer who decides whether they're going to waive it if the bank becomes insolvent. You know, hopefully none of the Islamic banks in the UK will become insolvent. But you know, question how many um, of their investors would at that stage be willing to give up the guaranteed return of their deposits up to the, 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 the statutory level. But in terms of... <clears throat> sorry, I'm drinking. In terms of the, the appetite for risk... Um, there's a, there is, the Islamic banks have shown limited appetite for risk, um, and that has had an effect on their growth. So before 2008, um, Islamic banks were growing and they were doing well, but they were not growing or making profits in the way that the conventional banks, who were leveraged up enormously, were able to do. And they were criticised for that, for being cautious um, and tortoise-like. And then with the financial crisis, with a few exceptions, a few of the banks were affected adversely by the financial crisis. Generally speaking, they were sort of seen as having been admirably cautious. Um, But the the appetite for risk that they showed... was based really on two Islamic injunctions. One was the prohibition against Qara, which um, prohibits entering into a contract where there is an uncertainty which one party can exploit against another party. So where there is a uh, difference in information and one person is able to to benefit from that, um, that is is not uh, the kind of contract that an Islamic financial institution can enter into. Um, And that was one of the reasons um, that many Islamic institutions didn't go anywhere near CDOs, CLOs, let alone CDSs. So um, when the conventional financial institutions were heavily affected by the, 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 sort of the domino effect that the financial crisis created because Islamic financial institutions hadn't participated in those instruments because of their uh, religious requirements, they, they didn't suffer the, the same level of effect. What they had done was sort of over-invest in property where there were bubbles and, um, and then they, uh, they suffered um, as those property prices fell. 
but many of them have, have recovered from that. The, the other um, religious restriction that affected them was the, the, the restriction against um, rib, riba, um, which isn't just regular forms of interest, but any form of unearned income. Um, and th- that didn't mean that they weren't allowed to make profits. Um, they're certainly allowed to make profits, but not simply by sort of sitting and charging um, on uh, on a contract as time passed. And so th- those two requirements to, to not participate in contracts which were subject to GARA, not participate in contracts which had RIBA attached to them, were probably the reason that Islamic uh, banks didn't suffer quite as sort of seriously as conventional banks did. And, and those requirements remain Islamic banks do take on risk, of course. If, you're, if your fundamental reason for being is that you're going to participate in profit and loss contracts, then you have to take on a level of performance risk. If, if there is a loss, you have to accept that. Also, you're allowed to, to try and hedge your potential losses in a number of different ways. So you can enter into Islamic contracts for... Uh, currency swaps for profit rate swaps. You can take out either TACAFL, which is Islamic insurance, or if that's not available, then conventional insurance. You can have guarantees from third parties to to support uh, a claim that you have, or you can take security for it over assets. So there are lots of different ways in which an Islamic financial institution can try and protect itself against performance risk, although it will take on performance risk. But when it comes to sharing risk, as far as profit and loss arrangements are concerned, two parties to a contract can decide how they're going to share profit. So if I enter into a contract with Paul, um, I can decide that Paul will get all the profit for the first whatever it is, £100,000, and then after that, I'll get some profit. Um, But when it comes to losses, we have to share pro rata according to our our share in the investment. So risk sharing is traditionally at the heart of Islamic finance. And the criticisms that that Paul made of Islamic finance that I was hearing in in various implied ways this morning at the Euromoney conference are all based on the fact that there is a sense that Islamic banks don't take on um, enough of those profit and loss-sharing arrangements that they say they do, but actually when it comes to uh, actually taking the risk, they find a mechanic around it. And the purchase undertakings that attach to Sukuk are one of the primary um, mechanics that are pointed to. Um, Risk transfer to third parties where you enter into an insurance or a tactical contract or you enter into... Um, a swap for, for currency or profit rate. Those are, those are all permitted. But what isn't is risk trading. I can't buy a risk in an underlying asset or a business where I don't have any actual interest. That's just a form of gambling, really. And that is why Islamic institutions are very, you know, we would keep a long way away from CDOs and, um, and, and uh, CDSs. That doesn't stop quite a number of, of people coming along and saying, is there a way in which you can structure a credit default swap um, that's Sharia compliant? But generally speaking, you know, most truly Islamic institutions would not want to do that. I, I, w- I want to sort of focus now on the, the ethics of Islamic finance. 
and just think about in a world after the financial crisis when conventional finance is looking at, at forms of ethical finance, whether Islamic finance has anything to offer beyond the prohibition against the formal payment of interest. So Islamic finance, when it was, I suppose, I mean, created is the wrong word, but, but when it uh, sort of came into being formally um, in the, the 60s and 70s, w- w- was to be based on social justice, on a system of finance where there was going to be fair dealing between the parties and where one side would not oppress the other and where charitable giving was to be built into the form of finance. So zakat has to be paid um, by Islamic banks that are making a profit. And mutuals that were set up in the 19th century had the same... um, reason for being. They were often set up by religious groups, so Quakers, for example, were were quite active in setting up credit unions. Today we're seeing churches um, in the UK setting up credit unions as an alternative to those um, appalling uh, people that we see charging vast amounts of interest uh, to people who can't uh, borrow from from regular banks. Um, So the, the religious driver, the ethical driver to try and come up with a form of financing which allowed people to deposit their money and to borrow financing to try and improve their lives was there from the very beginning, both in Islamic finance and in in, in the establishment of of mutual uh, forms of finance. But social justice requires that the interests of all the participants are taken into account, and that includes not just the shareholders, but it includes creditors. And the rights of creditors is, um, is important when you look at limited liability and um, the, 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 sort of the tranching of different types of creditors. Is it right that certain types of creditors can, can stand ahead of others? The questions around management, is it it's sort of interesting uh, today when you know, Barclays has announced that bonuses for certain employees announced that 12,000 people will be made unemployed and dividends will be less than, than last year. I mean, at that, that point, which is not uncommon with the Western system, you have to ask um, whether conventional financial institutions or, or any other institution is being run for the benefit of all the, the participants, or the, that appalling word, stakeholders, who are relevant. But for me, the stakeholders in a financial institution are not just management and employees, but it, it is... It is shareholders, it's creditors, it's managers, it's employees, it's customers. And it, it, it's also, the, the, it's broader than that. So one interesting question that was asked this morning was when a scholar is issuing a fatwa saying that a transaction is Sharia compliant, should he take into account the effect of the proposed transaction on the environment? Should he take into account the condition of the employees who will have to work on a, on a project or, or on the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the thing that is the subject of the financing. And the view of the scholars was, yes, in principle, all of those things should be taken into account in making sure that what you're doing is properly Sharia compliant. It's a holistic approach rather than the technical. Well, that bit, it, I don't know if you've, if you've ever come across the Sharia compliant glass of beer, but it, it's a pretty sort of 
it sort of sums up cynicism. You know, the glass is Sharia-compliant, the hops are Sharia-compliant, the water is Sharia-compliant. It's just when you put them all together that you have the problem. And so from a Sharia-compliant perspective, the right, there can't be oppression at any level. There has to be um, social justice for everybody that's involved in the chain. And if, if that's not being reflected in how Islamic finance is being conducted in practice, if it really is a question of form over substance, that's something that will catch us up, as perhaps the, 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 the extraordinary focus on leverage and interest in the conventional markets has finally caught us up there. Corporate governance has, um, has always been an issue, and it's a fundamental part of making sure that an organization runs in an ethical way because you have to have transparency, you have to have accountability and proper procedures. And again, before the financial crisis, Islamic financial institutions were often accused of not having proper corporate governance procedures in place. We don't hear that so much anymore because, of course, the conventional financial institutions have also had their problems with... Um, with corporate governance. And we've seen, I mean, I know the Carlt Bank is a limited liability um, institution. It stopped being a mutual a while ago. But the, the extraordinary levels of failure in corporate governance there is depressing. Um, and we saw it, I mean, corporate governance wasn't so much the issue, but we, you know, we saw our capita, which is a Sharia-compliant bank, just come out of Chapter 11. So these are issues that affect all types of financing. They have to be taken seriously by everybody. For me, and I might be wrong, you know, the model um, for Islamic finance is John Lewis, which isn't a bank, but it, you know, it, it is a, a, a department store that sells real things. But in terms of its structure, um, it, it, it's a, 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 I suppose, a, a partnership that's owned by its employees, um, but they, they seem to very much live that. So I, I have known somebody who has gone to work there. I was fascinated to hear that in the run-up two weeks before Christmas, everybody from the CEO downwards are in the stores working because that's their busy period. Everybody gets um, discounts for, for holidays. These are rights that continue after you retire. Um, there is a, a limited difference in terms of how much senior management earn against people um, on the shop floor. There is this constant recognition that um, a business like that has to work for the benefit of all, and it is the only shop I have ever written a thank you letter to um, because it, they, they treat their customers well, and I think the fact that everybody in the shop has um, a real um, uh, you know, a monetary outcome in how well it performs affects their, their approach to their work. So for me, John Lewis is a, is a model of Islamic finance in action. But I, I want to finish um, um, on, on this um, identity crisis because I think it's real. Um, I don't have um, a magic answer. I do think it would help if Islamic banks became more mutual-like so that there was a closer relationship between the customers who became shareholders um, who had a say in, in management, that, that there was um, a greater focus on um, the, the, the rights of employees, the, the kinds of uh, projects that are being financed, not just a list of, well, if it's not interest-bearing, if it's not pornography, if it's not weapons, you know, if you go through the list, then it's okay. But actually, 
more, uh, more um, uh, nuance than that. But we're seeing this um, on the conventional side as well. We're seeing ethical financing, and one of the things that I've had to look at is you know, how different is an ethical fund from a, an Islamic fund. There are differences in the types of investments, but there's a huge amount of overlap there. And if that's the case, the question arises again, what is the need for Islamic finance if it's simply a form of, of ethical finance? Um, we're seeing it with things like social impact bonds, um, where there is a, a focus again on patient capital, on putting in money, waiting for it to produce the goods and paying over time rather than looking for a return in the next quarter, which has been the driver uh, behind conventional finance. But the, the question of identifying what Islamic finance is, what is its USP, what makes it different from mutuals, conventional finance, ethical finance, is going to be at the heart of whether it um, becomes uh, the thing that the next the two billion people growing um, up until 2030 will choose to invest in, or you know, are they going to just shrug their shoulders and look for the best deal in the market? Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for me, Dan, and thank, thank you, Paul. Um, our speakers have raised some really challenging issues for uh, the present, but also the future of Islamic finance. I'm sure you have many questions, so the, the floor is open to ask questions. Um, I think we have, we have a microphone here, so if everyone could wait before they speak for the microphone to arrive. Thank you. Is it, is it on? Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, my question is really around, say, laws of, say, Christian usury. Now, an example of this in terms of Christianity was where they got around these laws by saying, looking at the actual wording itself, by saying a brother could not lend to another brother at interest. And the way they got around this was by allowing Jews, to, the members of the Jewish community, to lend funds to Christians. And, in fact, the very word bank comes from the word bankier, which was the bench they used to sit on to offer this financing in Venice. So what my question would be around... Is there any um, similar situation in uh, Islamic, fun, Islamic law where this interpretation has led to a difference in finance? So your question is, is Islamic finance for Muslims? And can you sell non-Sharia-compliant uh, products to non-Muslims? Sorry, my, my question was really sort of that, to say that interpretation of allowing sort of, um, members of the Jewish community to um, um, lend finances to Christians by getting around that usury law is there a similar situation within Islamic law, which is, or is there a similar situation where the interpretation of scripture has led to a type of practice within Islamic financing? If I understand you correctly, and I might not, and somebody's nodding at the front, so they might have more knowledge than I do. I mean, generally speaking, um, if you are an Islamic institution, you can only enter into contracts and transactions that are Sharia compliant. You can sell those Sharia compliant products to anybody person that you sell them to doesn't have to be a Muslim, it can be anybody at all. Um, but whether you as a Sharia compliant organisation could sell something that was not Sharia compliant to a non-Muslim and still pocket the, the profits from that and put that into your, your overall pool, I mean you, you couldn't, you couldn't take on um, interest that a, a non-Muslim had paid to you because it's interest and the concept of interest is forbidden. That, that would be my interpretation, but do you, I think you have a different one. What's yours? Yes, 
Uh, yes, there have been some effort where attempt where it was argued that the interest which is prohibited is not the riba that is prohibited that is mentioned in Quran, and the reason behind this is the, they go to Quranic verse where they say that you should not be exploited, you should not exploit, and you should not be exploited. So, and because of inflation, because of um, the purpose of the loan, uh, the, it was argued that it, the poor people was being were being exploited at that point in time when prohibition of riba came. And today, because of inflation, it is the lender who is exploited rather than the, uh, the, the but, borrower. But that's so a general, these arguments have been... There. Yes, but, but that, that's a general argument around yeah. what so the definition I, I, of river yeah. is. So uh, I, I'm coming to that point. The, so there, has, there are some attempts where some people try to argue that the riba and interest are two different things, and therefore banks working on the basis of interest should not be um, uh, considered as uh, doing something Sharia non-compliant. Of course, there is a consensus of scholars, Sharia scholars, that there is no difference between riba and interest for various reasons. Number one, there is no <coughs> purpose, um, you know, there is nothing like, you know, consumption loan or business loan. Any loan that uh, brings profit to you, to the lender, is, is, is a form of riba and therefore it is prohibited. The other argument is about uh, that uh, loss of value in currency, but that is not because of the um, because of the borrower, but because of the system. So if system is uh, reducing the value of the currency, uh, it, the borrower should not be penalized to pay more for that. So there are Sharia arguments in favor of um, interest being riba, and therefore it is prohibited. But there has been some attempt here and there in that or other circle where it has been argued that the interest is not something which is riba, and therefore it should, it should be allowed. But you couldn't distinguish between... I mean, if you were an Islamic financial institution, you couldn't say, you're a Muslim, I'm not going to charge you interest, so we'll enter into some profit-making arrangement, but you're a Christian, so we'll enter into straightforward No, that is contract. different. I think yes. you mentioned two different things. That For Jews, it was that you cannot charge your brother. Yes. And for Christians, you, are, you know, they were not charging usury, but rather interest, mm. right? So he, I think, what I understood we from your query right. was, was there any attempt similar to this in Muslim community to to justify that the interest is not that. I think that is the question which I understood and that's what I try to understand. Right. Okay. I'm happy to give you a full-blown exposition of the history of how that came about in Jewish and Christian thought, but I'm not sure this is the right time. <laughs> uh, Hold the microphones. I know you have a question I as have, well. I so have so you take the question. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, two observations. One is that you said about um, Aufi making a statement. It was... Uh, individual statement, not of his position of 90% sukuk being Sharia non-compliant. It is just like, you know, tomorrow I cannot say that I have said something because you said something. So that was one clarification. Aufi never made a statement. Of course, Aufi did come with some, some modifications to plug the loopholes that were being applied to, to create sukuk-like uh, bond, uh, complete bond. And second was uh, some observation regarding your point. Uh, that leveling is very important. I think de-leveling is already happening. There are many Muslim countries who never allowed word Islamic to be used. Never, historically, Turkey, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. There are countries who initially allowed, but now they have disallowed, like Nigeria has come up with regulations saying that word Islamic cannot be used now. And there are countries, secular countries like Sri Lanka and India, where they prefer to choose words like PLS banking or interest-free banking or something like that. So I believe that de-labeling has already started happening, and that is good for the industry. Uh, you know, we know Noor Bank has removed the word Islamic from its, its name. So already the process is on in various countries. So I thought uh, to bring to your attention. Oh, well, in the UK, in the legislation, you only find the term alternative finance. You don't find Islamic. And the French had huge problems when they tried to 
to use the word Islamic. But I think my point was, I think the word, the, the label Islamic is likely to distinguish Islamic finance and lead to growth. But it's certainly right that it's, it's highly sensitive and different people take different approaches. Thank you for a really great and insightful lecture. I also have a question about the discrepancy between what is a Sharia-compliant st structure and whether this would s s spark what us lawyers like to call a race to the bottom and how to avoid that. I think what's Sharia-compliant is, is extremely difficult because it's really for each person, each investor, each institution to, des to decide for itself. And the way I think we deal with it is by having a number of extremely well-respected scholars who issue fatwas saying that a particular transaction or a particular product is Sharia compliant. And those scholars are relied on by many potential investors. And so people will rely on that fatwa if they want to. They'll examine the structure for themselves to decide um, that it, it fits within their criteria. Some investors have you know, different criteria to others. So Moravaha, for example, um, is always um, an interesting one because that's the commodity uh, trade, um, which is structured in, in a way that's similar to a loan where the, the, the counterparties aren't really looking to buy the commodity. It's simply um, a mechanic through which uh, cash is, is paid and then ultimately a higher price is repaid. And some investors think that that's not Sharia compliant, it's a sham, um, it's like a loan, and so they won't accept it. Other investors think it's, it's perfectly acceptable and they will. It, 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 I, I think Paul talked earlier about standardization. Um, I think standardization is helpful for lawyers, but I'm not sure it's helpful for the faithful, because if you, if you really believe in the principles of Islamic finance, you're either going to find a structure that, or a product that works for you, or you're not. I mean, Malaysia is a very interesting example because they've worked really hard at standardizing particular structures at a national level, approving some structures, and then having individual organizations just audit a specific um, product as complying with the, the nationally approved structure. It, it, it's, a, it's a sort of work in progress, but I think there will always be investors who have particular needs, but I think the reality is that you do in the conventional world as well. But fundamentally, it's up to the individual, but the scholars play a fundamental role. Just to amplify the point about standardization, um, what I'm particularly thinking about would be where a number of similar contracts are being signed uh, and you, you have a potential for a mass market. So I sort of keep pushing the idea of a, a debt-free housing finance system, which is effectively lease to buy. Um, you can have a relatively standardized lease to buy contract um, where you have 10 or 20% down and then you agree how the rental is going to be shared, how amortization is going to occur, and so on. But because we just haven't really got models in the UK context sort of widely disseminated, when I suggest this to people, they have no idea what I'm saying. So 
um, if we can start getting that idea of, yes, you can do this in maybe two or three different ways um, depending on circumstances, but it, there is a standard spreadsheet you can use, there is a, a, an, a, an, a contract, then you can start thinking about um, getting these ideas more widely used. Could I just, just take Chair's privilege to push you on that for a second, Paul? Because, um, you know, we hear a lot in economics about network externalities, and the QWERTY keyboard is one of the classic ones that's given. There. There's a better keyboard, we type faster, we'd be more productive, we have a different keyboard. Uh, but it could be just the case, that actually, the QWERTY keyboard is actually pretty good. Mm. Um, and um, so it, it, could, it could it be the case in the context of moving from um, a, a classical mortgage scenario to a lease to buy that, that actually it's just more expensive to do lease to buy. And it's not about network externalities, it's just about hard economics. It's certainly more expensive initially, and because you've got the idea that um, we, we like to retain ownership, therefore we're going to uh, use a debt contract rather than an ownership sharing contract, that's immediately appealing. My point through the, throughout the talk was that that's a, in one sense a sham. We Rather than subsidise pollution, we tax it because it spreads costs to third parties. Whereas with debt, we carry, we're carrying on subsidising it. So, surprise, surprise, we've now got another subsidy through help to buy. Um, two, which is going to is put the taxpayer at the bottom of the riskiest part of the housing mortgage finance system in the UK. Surprise, surprise, that encouraged lots of people to think, ah, the, the government is now not going to tax property, it's not going to allow house price collapse because it's now got the biggest, riskiest part of the, the, the capital structure. So yet again, we've got housing not falling to its sort of market clearing value because we've got a subsidy come in to stop that happening because, surprise, surprise, we've got 18 months to a general election. So each time the debt system is bailed out, costs are imposed on us as taxpayers through taking this risk and giving subsidies to the system. Um, and so I would, in one sense, I'd like the two systems to have a fair contest to see which is truly costly or not. The debt system would survive for a while but collapse because you can't have levered institutions of 20, 30 times without external support. They will, they will fold when a shock occurs. If you have a levered, uh, if, if you've got a, hedge, a credit hedge fund um, where people know they're not going to get bailed out, know they've got to take big liquidity risk on themselves, most, the most a levered uh, credit hedge fund can be is three or four times. Uh, so we have banks that are levered 20, 30, 40 times. And in one sense, it's, not, it, it's sort of not fair. So, yeah, give, give a, have a fair fight, but you've got to strip away all those benefits that debt has had for, for a long time. I had a question specifically to Paul. I was wondering whether this, there was any discussion to change this capital weight system in Basel regulation. As a bank, I can't provide equity finance if I have to put in 200 or 400 percent on equity compared to debt, yeah. meaning banks specialize in debt and no equity is provided, and all the money supply is done via banks, so in the end, there is only debt. Yeah. Equity is only given out of the profits generated in the real economy, not in the, not in the banking sector anymore. And this is getting out of balance. 
So there's a lot of debate about what the appropriate risk weights are for banks in Basel III. And so, shockingly, even though we've had a Greek debt restructuring, all sovereign bonds within the euro area are risk-free if a bank holds them. They have no need to put any capital up against them. Conventional mortgages are at most 20% risk-weighted. Uh, so more, holding a mortgage is very capital efficient for a bank. Holding real property is vastly expensive. So if you were doing a lease-to-buy arrangement on a bank, that would be non-economic relative to a mortgage. This is not so, a market system. It is just... Um, well, in one sense, you can understand the regulators, because, yes, equity is expensive, uh, is risky, sorry, um, partly because companies are leveraged. If we took away the tax break to company debt, equity would actually be much more stable, but that's a side point. Um, and so regulators say, right, how do I make banks less risky, safer? They need capital if, if they're going to take on risky assets and therefore uh, property is risky because house prices can fall, equity is risky. Whereas mortgages, in the main, tend to be relatively safe historically. Now the problem is that that then doesn't factor in the wider macroeconomic costs that come about. So it's sort of silo regulation without an overarching sort of view of what would a safe financial system actually look like. Now, one or two people, Andy Haldane at the Bank of England um, is one, have started to think more widely, but getting international consensus on that is just impossible, partly because regulators are still coming from that debt mentality, partly because the lobby of their banks is very strong, and politicians do not want to start raising the real cost of capital for consumer credit for mortgages and so on, because that's not the way to win elections. So you, you have this entrenched um, problem in moving to another system. And because we don't allow a, a true competition, the debt system to fail if it's going to fail, then it still persists. Um, until it fails, then, as we've seen, we've had a, a sort of one or two years of thinking about it, we have Occupy outside St. Paul's. The church has nothing to say because it's forgotten the Bible and forgotten the prohibition of interest. And therefore, it doesn't say, right, we need to de-lever the, the system and move to an equity basis. Um, so we, we have this... Um, we're, we're stuck in this rut. We're trying to make the credit system safer but we're, we're reliant on regulators to spot the next crisis and nip it in the bud. So we are hoping that macroprudential measures will come along and stop a housing bubble. It's happening in some countries. Sweden, Belgium, and so on, are, are putting capital weights up for mortgages at the moment to, to try and stop house price rising. I haven't yet heard the Bank of England seriously consider that. But no insurance concept has been discussed as a replacement for capital, right? So a market-based solution or something. Regulators and authorities are starting to understand that they need to move financial intermediation to safer balance sheets, and that means insurance companies and pension funds. 
And so a, a key focus at the moment is how do you finance infrastructure? Banks normally, uh, or had been in t until the crisis, been doing a lot of infrastructure investment because it was quasi-sovereign, close to risk-free, and uh, banks thought they could maturity uh, mismatch uh, to their heart's content. So Dexia is perhaps the, the most egregious example where it's, it was wholesale funded at sort of six months on a repo book. It was, borrow it was lending at 30 and 40-year bonds and is going to be sitting on Belgium and French government's balance sheet for a long time as they work through the loss of that maturity mismatch. Now we've stopped that and it's, we've realised that borrowing at six months and lending for 40 years isn't a very good idea. Um, there's no one financing infrastructure because governments don't want to do it directly on balance sheet. They're balance sheet constrained. Banks can't do it. And we're going to capital penalise insurance companies vastly if they do it. There is a gradual relaxation of this idea of, uh, of trying to allow insurers and pension funds to do this. Um, but it's on a debt basis, not on a lease-sharing lease basis. Okay, I've got the, gen the gentleman there. Sorry, in the middle of things first, and I've got the gentleman across Thank you. Well, as I understand, Sukuk or any other financial product cannot be traded, uh, or it cannot be traded at, it has to be traded at par, if you will. It's only Marabah or Sukuk. Um, but but if, you're, if you have Sukuk based on an Ajara or... Um, uh, Sharika or you know, Wakala's or Madara, Madarabas, um, then they, they, they can be traded in Got the market. It. Even with a Marabaha, if, if um, a proportion of the Sukuk is um, asset-based, so if, if you have a, a combination, which is now quite common, of a Marabaha Wakala Sukuk, um, even where the uh, Marabaha forms, say, two-thirds of that, that's still a tradable Sukuk. Got it. Okay. You know, the, thanks for the clarification. Now, as it applies to commercial banks, will start issuing some of these uh, instruments, how can they effectively perform valuation on these products uh, in a way that it truly reflects what their underlying risk is? And secondly, uh, you know, as you think about c commercial banks issuing these uh, products, uh, some of the shareholders, including the management, would potentially be making profit on the bank itself by trading the stocks. Do you think that in any sense goes against uh, 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 just the, uh, the, the Sharia law or, or what, whatever that drives Islamic uh, products, uh, financial products? Um, in, in terms of the underlying risk on Sukuk, um, as Paul said earlier, <coughs> most Sukuk are simply asset-based. So if something goes wrong with a transaction, uh, your recourse is not to the asset It'll be to a purchase under a claim on a purchase undertaking, which um, you can then enforce against the person who's provided that purchase undertaking. So you end up with a, an unsecured debt claim at that point. And so, as a result of that, investors don't look too hard at the performance of the asset that sits below the Sukuk because um, it, you know, it, it produces rental or, or you know, profit share. Um, during the life of the Sukuk, but they know that if there's a default halfway through, their, their recourse is going to be to the purchase undertaking. And that's sort of, you know, that's where the market has ended up. Some people criticize it and say, 
you should have a right of recourse to, to the underlying asset. Um, so I think most investors don't look too hard at the underlying performance. In, in terms of the trading of the stock, is your, is your concern that the Sukuk is effectively a form of borrowing money which is then supporting the overall business of the company that's being reflected in the stock price? Is that... Yes, so some of the commercial banks have uh, a portion of the assets which are Sukuk or you know, Islamic financial products do you think trading that, that stock of the bank itself in a way uh, I, I, affects... I think you know, most scholars don't see Sukuk as debt. It, it, it is seen as a form of profit share in the market, despite this um, sort of clause that applies if there's a default, either um, during the life of the deal or at the end of it. So I don't think most... Scholars would say that because a company had issued a number of Sukuk, had got funding in and had used that to uh, sort of improve its business and its profitability, that that then meant that there was a lot of debt in that company which was um, uh, sort of impacting the stock price. I, th- I think that's the view that is generally taken. Now, an individual investor might say, I don't think that you know, this Sukuk is, is really anything other than a form of, of debt because I because I, I have no underlying claim to the asset. And therefore, my personal view is that this is effectively leveraged stock. And that could be a decision of an individual investor. But I don't think that's the market view. Would you agree? Sorry, I'm going to have, we've got five minutes, and I just want to let the, yes. the next person in there. So, um, gentlemen at the back there, thank you. Uh, I think we've got time for maybe two more questions. We'll finish on time at 8 o'clock. So... Uh, I wanted to ask, how is benchmarking justified in Islamic finance? Because, let's say benchmarking to LIBOR, because the subject of benchmarking is is based on conventional interest rate methodology. So how do uh, Islamic banks justify benchmarking to LIBOR, let's say, when they are talking about mortgage? It, it, it's generally, um, the, the scholars get asked that question a lot, and, and their view is um, that... Two, two parties are allowed to decide what market rate they're going to apply um, and the fact that LIBOR is a well-developed rate but it's something that's outside the structure but you and I entering into a contract can say we will apply a level of profit to our transaction which we will benchmark to this external uh, uh, factor that, that isn't a part of our deal. So that, that's the justification, that it's simply a referring point which allows two people, to, or many people, to agree what the market rate is going to be for their transaction, because the market can be all sorts of things. But it is the, the, the use of LIBOR is something that causes a huge amount of concern and worry and gives rise to um, you know, concerns about whether we're really looking at a profit and share system or whether we're looking at forms of disguised interest. So the scholars are comfortable justifying it, but it does give cause for concern to some people. Thank you. Okay, very final question, gentlemen over there, and then we'll have to wrap it up. Thank you very much. Uh, I like very much the idea of Dr. Paul Mills when he talked about what can be done. Uh, my question is that there can be many things that can be done, but can you pinpoint what uh, two or three main things 
can be created, can be taken up to change the system. Because as I, as I understand, that every system creates its own institutions and culture. And the culture that it creates helps perpetuate the system. So we are living in a dead culture where all institutions, rules, etc., are supporting one kind of institution, so it is difficult to bring a change. But can you pinpoint two or three key factors that needs to be changed okay. to start the ball rolling or to start a domino effect? Well, the, in one sense, the easy conventional thing to do is strip away tax subsidies. Even the IMF now advocates a lesson from the crisis is to remove tax breaks for corporate debt and often for mortgage interest debt uh, where that applies. So the, the US government still spends in, in a tax break $150 billion a year on mortgage interest relief. It spends some of that, again, on corporate debt relief. Don't forget that banks also get the corporate tax relief on debt. And so banks are inherently incentivized to lever up through the tax system. This is why we have all of a sudden a big rush for banks to issue COCOs, contingent uh, um, capital instruments, because they're regarded as debt rather than equity, even though they could, some of them could turn into equity. Because, surprise, surprise, in the last budget, the UK government gave a tax break to... to uh, regard them as debt rather than equity. And so, in one sense, that's the conventional... Most microeconomists would agree with that. There shouldn't be a tax break, strip out that tax subsidy, and that would have sort of ripple effects to de-lever, start to delever the system. I think there's an issue about culture, and this is where we've got a huge intergenerational problem because our societies are descending into debt slavery, where the older generations are effectively, via their pension funds, via their banks, via their governments, enslaving younger generations in debt in order to pay their pensions. And so you've got this sort of tendency. It's not... No politician, no social thinker is sort of really putting these thoughts fully together. Uh, but as um, those with savings retire, their demand for debt instruments is going to continue to increase because as more and more people need to live off savings, uh, they will move from equity, which is risky or deemed to be risky, into debt. So the demand for long-term bonds and, and interest-type structures is going to carry on rising as those with um, savings desire to live off them. And so debt, ironically, long-term debt, is going to stay relatively cheap. There's going to be a, a lot of demand for 30- and 40-year bonds, particularly from the government, um, as people have to live off them. They, we're sort of in one sense returning to the Jane Austen Rontier society. And so that demand for debt requires debtors to pay it and commit to that for a long time. And the primary um, source of that guarantee is government, so you're going to find uh, 
governments will be able to finance debts at 100 plus percent of GDP because there's that in incipient demand. Um, but they're going to need capital controls to do it um, because there'll be concerns over government's ability to sustain this debt burden and they'll have to keep savings at home to do it. Um, and the problem is we're, we're sort of going to keep this demand for, for debt servitude going in order to pay pensions to do it and save as returns. And so part of the, the cultural shift has to be to say, um, this is where the, the Bible is far richer, I'm afraid, than the Quran, in that it does explicitly say debt is financial servitude, is financial slavery. You've given a promise to repay, therefore you are not free. And therefore the need for periodic debt cancellation, debt freedom, is an ideal running through the Bible. And in fact, in one sense, that's the big message of the Bible, that there, there needs to be debt freedom, but spiritually as well as financially. And until you sort of realize that debt is servitude, you've given your promise to repay, uh, but that the need for freedom is there, uh, we, we culturally won't get it. We'll descend into debt servitude. And dare one say, in this institution, Student debt is part of that process, uh, that it is trying to um, inculture an idea of servitude, of a, of a debt burden for the next 30 years, the first 30 years of your working life, as part of that process. And so in the US, we now have people retiring who still are in student debt, let alone mortgages, because in the US, student debt cannot be relieved through personal bankruptcy. And so even though it's subsidized, it's still being charged at sort of 8 or 9% and has now gone over a trillion dollars. And so there's this generation, two, generation and a half now of American graduates who are sort of living with this burden as part of their, their culture. And until we change that mentality, um, we're going to effectively live in debt servitude. So changing that cult, attacking that culture is part of it's the big thing. Well, I mean, I, I think the, I mean, I completely agree that the extraordinary tax advantages for um, lending are unjustifiable. And it is remarkable that it's never questioned, despite the financial crisis that we've been through. Um, nobody questions that this is an appropriate use of resources for a state with very limited resources in the case of the UK. Um, so I think, I think it does have to be done. Um, and, and for me, that would be the starting point. And, and perhaps the flip side of that is perhaps we use the tax system to prefer dividends and so try and, and create an alternative system, which, again, nobody does. I mean, the UK, because it's a, it's a sort of heavily taxed um, uh, country... I think can change behaviour very quickly. That, that isn't the case, for example, in, in, in a number of Muslim countries where um, the tax system isn't as developed um, and doesn't control behaviour in the same way. But the speed at which the finance industry responds to any tax incentive or disincentive is remarkable. So for me, that is definitely the starting point for how we change behaviour. I, mean, I would be fascinated to know, I'm sure Paul does know, what would happen if... Tomorrow, we said no more, um, no more tax benefits for debt. 
So the Chancellor, when he was in opposition in 2009, publicly stated that removing the tax break for corporate debt should be looked at if the Conservatives were elected. And I was thinking, wow, we're getting there. Um, I sus that was, of course, never heard of again. And I suspect that the private equity donors to the Conservative Party made sure it was never thought of again. Because the key is that if you take away the tax break to debt, there's no point in a leverage buyout again, and the private equity industry ceases to exist. So you have a very strong vested interest that is going to want to preserve this come what may. You've got leveraged utilities and a number of other sectors that are deemed to be safe and therefore can carry leverage of two, three, four times on the balance sheet, whose share price would collapse if you took this away. So you have a number of, sort of interests that we'll try and seek that, to ensure that this doesn't happen. Uh, and you smooth it in, you might grandfather it and so on, but um, it could be done relatively easily. It is, it is technical for those tax lawyers and accountants in the room, but um, it can be done. Mr. Lynch, it just is left to me now to say thank you for you, for you all for coming tonight, and, um, and a really big thank you to our two speakers tonight. I think you've left with us with some really challenging and provocative ideas to go away and think about tonight, so thank you both very much. <laughs>